um, the last time we were together in this room and I was here with you, um, and we were sharing, we were going through David, right? We are looking at David's tabernacle, we compared it to Moses' tabernacle, and we were going through all that, and the last time that we were together, we took that same passage in 2 Samuel and looked at the fact that um, he cheated with Bathsheba, right? And then we looked at the forgiveness that God had for him. And one of the main things he said was, if you say I'm clean, what? I'm clean. That was his whole basis on if he was clean or not. If you say it, God, then that's what I am. You know, you think about that in the New Testament. All those that we, t- we mentioned this last night when we were gathered together that you got to think about too that 4,000 years of the way the Jewish people did temple rituals and things of that nature and then all of a sudden these new guys in the early church are saying, no, this is how we're going to do it now. I mean, you're, you're, you got to be mind-boggling to some of those people, right? But think about Peter. Whenever he sees the animals and he says, I can't eat that if it's unclean, right? I can't have anything to do with that. And God told him, if I say it's clean, it's clean. It's the same passage that we're looking at with David when he said that. If you say I'm clean, then I'm clean. So I want to look at one more, one more thing in that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And that was this. At the very beginning of that chapter, before he begins to cheat with Bathsheba, it says, in the spring, when kings go to war, guess what David did? Guess what he did? You ain't got to go there right now, Miranda. I'm going to be all over the place. I'll give you some passages in a minute. It says, when, in the spring, when kings go to war, but David did what? Anybody remember? He stayed home. He stayed in Jerusalem. When it says, in the spring, when kings go to war, this king stayed home, right? This little pig went to the market. This pig stayed home, right? He stayed home. And what happened? When he should have been fighting a battle, he created a battle of his own. And he failed, right? And so one of the aspects I was thinking about that is, is the fact that we are coming into an era We talked about this a little bit last night. We are coming into a place where the sons and the daughters of God are beginning to realize who they really are. There may be a remnant of us, but there is a beginning season. Seasons and times are changing, right? To where the sons of God are realizing who they are. And one of the things that we've got to learn, and one of the things that we looked at way back in the spring of last year, and we're almost going full circle to this year, to this spring, But in the spring of last year, we looked at some of the prophecies that Bob Jones had talked about for the 10-year increments. And one of the things, everything that he had said up from 1950 up to this point has come true. And one of the things that he prophesied for the 2020 to 2029 was that the people of God would finally enter into a place of rest. Now, that does not mean we're going to enter into a place where we're just lazy and we sit back and we do nothing. But it is a place where we learn how to fight from a different place. It is not fighting from a place of strife and a place of where we are so uneasy we know nothing to do. I was sharing with Desmond, there were some things 
last weekend, right? God is moving among us. Last weekend, he, the enemy, what do you want to do? Attack us, right? Got my whole family sick. I don't see that from God. That's from the enemy, right? You could just say, well, that's just random. Everybody gets stomach virus. Sickness, all sickness is not from him. Every sickness, whether it's small or big, is not from God. We see that all throughout Scripture, right? So the enemy attacks. And then there was another event in our life this week that the enemy attacked. And so in that moment, I wanted to, I told Desmond, I just wanted to get worried. I wanted to get stressed out, right? Because I wanted to let it just go over and mull over in my mind, the circumstance. Instead of, I, would, I told Des last night, I said, I just had to continue that every time I would get my mind in it, I would just stop, take a deep breath and say, Holy Spirit, Jesus, Father, I invite y'all into this situation. I invite you in. Just let me be still. Let my heart. Not to say that I didn't have something that I had to do in that situation to see some things take place, but I had to get to the place where my heart was in rest with Him. So God is taking us and he He is preparing us to the bride that we are supposed to be, to the place that where we are fighting, but it looks a lot different than what the world is trying to fight, right? We have riots, we have protests, we have uh, right against left, we have left against right. We got all these things going on when the people of God should be coming under the banner of rest and love. And that doesn't mean there's not a battle to fight, but it looks totally different than what the world has told us it's supposed to look like. It even looks different than past generations. Just because a generation before you who was a godly generation did it a certain way does not mean that he wants you to step in and do it that way right now in 2021. Right? 2020 was vision, right? Last year to get our vision corrected, Right? Psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is a taste, there is an experience, but and see that the Lord is good. There is a new perception, a new reality that you have to look upon the things that are going on this earth with the lens of His goodness. To see that He is still at work, that He has never left us, and He won't leave us or forsake us. But He is restoring all things, even right now in the midst of it. So I want us to look at a story of Esther. You can turn to the book of Esther if you would like. It is not in the Passion Version. However, every verse we look at after this, we'll look in the Passion. So the story of Esther, you can put Esther chapter 2 if you want to, Miranda. I'll be New Living Translation if you uh, want to do that one. Uh, But I want to pass out some verses so when we do get to these verses, you already have them. Um, so let's look at the story of Esther. Just in case you forgot about the story of Esther, I'm going to give a brief summary real quick of the book of Esther. And then after that, I want to zoom in to chapter 2. Remember, the story of Esther is 100 years after the Babylonian exile. The Jewish people have been um, exiled from their land. And so some get to... It's opened up. You can go back to Jerusalem. Some did go back to Jerusalem, but most of them did not. And so what we are zooming in in the book of Esther is a little Jewish community that is inside of the city of uh, Susa, which is the capital of this Persian empire. And so that's where we're picking up in the story. 
So there's four main characters um, that we're that we'll talk about, and that's Esther, and then her cousin Mordecai. But then you also have the king, and you have his right hand man Haman. Um, and so the story begins with the king, and he wants to throw this huge, elaborate party. We're not talking about an overnight party. We're talking about a party that lasts 180 days, right? We ain't experiencing it like that, right? Like, they're just throwing down. And the whole purpose of this party is he wants to show off his wife. But when he calls his wife to show off, what she do? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it, right? So what's he do? You gone, girl. And then he makes a declaration that day that says, "All men are head of their uh, head of their household, and they everybody in there, including their wife, must submit to them." Okay, so he makes this big declaration. He's mad, but he gets on, and time starts going along, and guess what? He starts missing over. So they got an idea. Hey, let's uh, let's get some girls together, right? And we're going to do the Bachelor like on TV or whatever. Whenever we get all these girls and see which one you like. Uh, we're going to get all these girls together and see which one you like. And um, then you get to choose, and that'll be the new wife. And so King's like, all right, might be a good idea, so let's try it. And so they do. Um, Esther finds favor with the king in the midst of all that. Um, and in the right about the same time that she's getting picked as... Um, the new queen, um, the king's new wife, Mordecai, which, remember, is the cousin, he overhears a couple of soldiers talking that they're going to kill the king. And so he immediately goes and tells, um, and voila, they follow the plan, soldiers get taken care of, and the king's saved. All right, so you think everything's going good. Until Haman. Haman does not like Mordecai whatsoever because... The king's right-hand man is Haman, and so he has made a declaration about Haman that says everybody must bow to Haman. Well, guess who don't bow to Haman? Mordecai. He's like, I can't do it. I ain't bowing to that dude. So whenever he finds out that Mordecai will not bow down, he says, not only am I going to get him killed, he finds out that he is a Jew, and he says this whole Jewish little community that we got living here in the capital, they're going to be annihilated too. So Mordecai... And Esther try to come up with a plan. How are we going to save our people? And so it's the big, huge, right? The big climax of the story whenever Mordecai looks at um, Esther and says, maybe you were born for such a time as this. Remember that? It's a famous phrase. We use it all the time, even today. But he looks at her and says, maybe you were born for such a time as this. But Esther's in a little of a pickle because you can't just, even though she is the wife, you don't just approach the king. If you try to approach the king whenever he is on his throne and he doesn't want you in at that moment, even if you are his wife, he can say, you go. And so Esther that night, talking to Mordecai, finally just says, you know what? You're exactly right. If I die, I die. I'm willing to sacrifice myself for my people. So, she comes to the king, and he grants her favor to come into his presence. And whenever she um, asks him, she, or he says, what can I do for you? And he, she said, I want you and Haman to come to a banquet. So, he gets Haman, they come to a little banquet that she kind of sets up for them. They wine, they dine, everything. And he says, so now, what do you want? Esther says, if it would be pleasing to the king, I want you to come, come back again tomorrow night 
and then I'll tell you what I want. So they leave. Haman, as he walks out of the palace that night, he sees Mordecai. Furious, outraged about him again. He says, I can't wait till the annihilation day for all the Jews. I want to get him killed tomorrow. So I'm going to go ahead and he gets this big, huge stake in the ground that's set up that he's going to impale Mordecai on. Okay? So, that night, King can't sleep. And so, to put him to sleep, he gets some people to read the Chronicles and starts talking about all the things that the king has done all throughout the years and all these things. And in the midst of all that reading, it comes to the part where Mordecai saved his life. And he says, what did we ever do for Mordecai after he saved my life? Well, he done anything. Tomorrow we will. So he goes to bed, gets up the next day. Haman's ready. You know, he's coming to get ready to kill Mordecai. Put him on there and he's going to tell the king all about how bad Mordecai is and get him impaled. Before he can say a word when he comes in, the king says, what do you think we should do for somebody that I love? Right? How can we honor him and how can we esteem him? He says, oh, I know, king. We can just escort him all around the city and have people praise him and all this kind of stuff. He said, excellent choice. He said, now go get Mordecai and walk him around. Whoo, you talk about putting some hot coals on Haman, right? Because he thought he's been getting killed and now he's got to escort the dude around, okay? They get all that done and they come back to the feast that Esther has and says, what do you want? And Esther says, well, I want you to save my people. And he's like, what are you talking about? Who's your people? All this time she has hidden her identity as a Jew. And she goes to tell him. And she goes to begin to tell him about um, Haman and how his plot to kill her people and all this kind of stuff. And then he finds out that he even wanted to get Mordecai killed. And so what does he do? He turns the whole situation around and the king immediately puts Haman on the stake that he had pulled for himself. Then he meets up with Esther and Mordecai and gets that whole, the whole... Um, proclamation that was filled out to say, hey, they're going to be killed on this day. They got it reversed. Not only did they get it reversed, all the people that were in charge of it and wanted the Jews killed, they got them annihilated. So it was like she saved not only her people, but even evil in the country was annihilated for such a time as this. Now, it didn't just happen overnight, and it didn't just go everything to plan, right? But notice how she never got in a place of, oh, what if it's not work? What if it's not work? And all upset. What did she say? If I die, I die. But I'm going to the king, right? So I want you to see how Esther even got into this place. So let's now, now that you kind of know the overview of how she saved this place, let's just go into, zoom in in a portion of the story in chapter 2. So in Esther chapter 2, beginning with um, verse 8. This is where they're gathering the ladies for her to see if she can become king right all the way. And this is the process she went through. As a result of the king's decree, Esther along with many other young women was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. 
Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. Now notice, did it say he did that for everybody? No, she gained what it said with this guy? He gained, she gained favor with him, right? And so he quickly ordered this special menu for her. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. So she had found favor. Has she done anything at this point? Has she said, hey, let me try to talk y'all into coming to help us? No. She's simply following everything Haggai said. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed, listen to this, 12 months, 12 months of beauty treatments. Six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. You think there was a long preparation period? This, like I said, this ain't overnight. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. Notice, not all of them are getting this. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There, she would be under the care of Shagaza, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had specially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Esther was the daughter of Behel, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai adopted his younger cousin Esther, and when it was Esther's turn to go to to the king, she accepted the vice of who? Hey, yeah. That's the one that was there the whole time. Right? He's there with this whole 12-month period. She never does anything out of order. Only what Haggai says. Only what he says does she do. Right? And so she accepted the vice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem, and she asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter, the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave her a banquet in Esther's honor for all of his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and out of secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions, and that's where you get into that other part of the story. Here's what I want you to focus. How long did it take her to prepare, it says, before she got to get with the king? Twelve months. Six months with this purification and twelve months with, I mean, six months with this, right? But a combined twelve months. The whole time she did not do what she wanted to do. She only did what Haggai suggested for her to do. She took no other thing with her, did nothing else, only what he said. Now, most scholars, when you begin to read in some of these commentaries and things like that, Haggai represents in us, in our spiritual state, Holy Spirit. What are we supposed to be doing right now in preparation? 
We're supposed to be getting ready for who? Hmm? Christ? Okay. How? Go ahead, throw some things out. I know we all got our opinions. You think about it right now. You better... All right. All my life, this is what I heard. This where you want to be when the Lord come back, boy? You heard that? Now, we got our opinions, right, of how we got to get straight. But what did she do? Is she, was she doing something? Or was she soaking in what he wanted her to do? So let's look at how this applies to us, and we'll get back to Esther in just a minute. So, John 3, 22-36. I don't know who said that they would get that, but... Um, I want you to pay attention to a couple of words here, and this is where we're going to go deeper. Verse 22 through 36, go ahead and read that, and then this is going to be Passion Version. Then Jesus and his disciples went out for a length of time into the Judean countryside where they baptized the people. At this time, John was still baptizing people at Anon near Salem, where there was plenty of water, and the people kept coming for John to baptize them. This was before John was thrown in prison. An argument then developed between John's disciples and a particular Jewish man about baptism. So they went to John and asked him, Teacher, are you aware that the one you told us about at the crossing place, he's now baptizing everyone with larger crowds than yours? People are flocking him. What do you think about that? John answered them, A person cannot receive even one thing unless God is You've heard me tell you before that I am not the Messiah, but certainly I am the messenger sent ahead of him. He is the bridegroom, and the bride belongs to him. I am the friend of the bridegroom who stands nearby and listens with great joy to the bridegroom's voice. And because of his words, my joy is complete and overflows. So it's necessary for him to increase and for me to be diminished. For the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks from the natural realm. For the one who comes from above is above everything and speaks of the highest realm of all. And his message is about what he has seen and experienced, even though people don't accept it. Yet those who embrace this message know in their hearts that it's the truth. The one whom God has sent to represent him will speak the words of God, for God has poured out upon him the fullness of the Holy Spirit without limitation. The Father loves his Son so much that all things have been given into his hands. Those who trust in the Son possess eternal life, but those who don't obey the Son will not see life, and God's anger will rise up against them. Got a couple things going on in this passage. This is the famous passage where John says, I must decrease so that he must increase, right? And so in that passage, you've got to understand it's not just that well, nothing of John and just all of Jesus. John is ending something here, right? It is a covenant that he is ending and he is ushering in this new covenant, right? He is ushering in the presence. He is ushering in Jesus' kingdom and bringing it here on earth, right? And so one of the, one of the um, notes that Dr. Simmons puts on verse 30 says, The increase of Christ in verse 30 is the bride of Christ, which is in verse 29. We are the increase of Christ and his counterpart. Just as Eve was the increase of Adam, the bride is the increase of Christ on the earth. We are that increase. So how should we pray? Do we pray exactly like John? This is probably how we should pray. 
All of you, Jesus, and all of me. Right? Not that I decrease and it's just Jesus. No, He wants to inhabit you until the point that you are the bride that is increasing in Him. So the increase is Him coming into the fullness of the bride of Christ and they are united as one, ushering in the presence here on earth. John begins to talk about that here. He says, He is the bridegroom. You are the bride. And He's coming from a place of such intimacy. John's talking about here at the end. He is coming from a place of such intimacy. He says that some people just can't get it. They can't understand it. But if you would just simply believe what He's saying to you, you would simply believe these words that He is giving you, you will come into an intimacy like never before. That's what He's trying to get us to see. Now, Revelation 19, 6-8. So the epic conclusion here is a big wedding, right? The wedding feast of the Lamb. And what did he say? It's time because, it's time because, not because there's wars on earth, not because there's a bunch of famine and earthquakes and there's a lot of trouble and all the left and right people are against each other and they want to take our guns and we're going to start a civil war and there's so much rioting and looting, Jesus has to come back any second. No, he says the climax is, is whenever the bride has made herself ready. She made herself ready. Who's the bride? We are. There is a place that when we can come into rest and let Holy Spirit begin to do the pruning. Note this word here. Just throw this in there for you also. In verse 30, Dr. Simmons puts the footnote here that he is destined to become greater and John's using the word pruned there. What does he do? Jesus says he is the vine dresser. What does he do with those, with those things that are not producing fruit? He doesn't throw them away. It says he props them up so that they can produce. Well, the only way I've ever seen plants being propped up is whenever they're, they may be falling over or whatever. We may we put a rod there, but we tie them up and we leave them there until they can what? Grow into the, what they need to be in their strength, right? And so he is propping you up by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is coming in and he is pruning those things that do not need to be there, but he is propping up those things that you have let go to the side, those uh, gifts that you let go to the side and he was focusing on one gift, he wants to prop all those up so that it is a natural flow from you. That's good. 2 Corinthians 11, 20, uh, 11 2 through 3. 
You need to know that God's passion is burning inside of me for you because like a loving father, I've pledged your hand in marriage to Christ, your true bridegroom. I've also promised that I would present his fiance to him as a pure virgin bride. But now I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's clever lies, your thoughts may be corrupted, and you may lose your single-hearted devotion and pure love for Christ. Okay. Paul says, you've got to understand there's a burning so deep inside my heart right now that you've got to understand that I want you to be presented to Christ, the bridegroom. I want you presented to him in all your glory, in all your beauty, in all your purity. I want you to be presented that. He said, but some of you are starting to believe a pseudo-Jesus is what he calls it here, meaning an imposter. Right? Now you fast forward to 2021. Some of us are believing in a Jesus that's going to come back and He's going to throw all the people in hell so that we can finally be caught up in the air. What kind of Jesus is that? That's a Jesus that says to hell with everybody else just as long as I'm in. Now if you're okay with that, then I'm not sure you've become love. And I'm not sure you're ready for, the, you're not the bride that is trying to make herself ready because the bride who is making herself ready has laid her life down for the person beside them. And in that attitude, there is nothing about laying your life down. It is actually saying to hell with everybody. I got my ticket in. So what with y'all? So we're making ourselves ready. Notice, it is not a process of striving. It is not a process of work. It is a process of resting in Him. If you were here back in the spring, one of the things that we talked about constantly, right? doesn't matter if two people came here or 50 people came. We're just going to rest. We're just going to rest in Him. We're not making this a work. We're not putting a yoke on you or on ourselves. We simply want to come into a place of rest and let Him work in and through us. Ephesians 5, try to go to the throne of grace with confidence and boldness to receive whatever we ask for in his name we don't have shame why because he's already by his sacrifice says cleansed you now it says now sit beneath the washing of the water of the word can't you see esther in that 12 month period just being soaked in all of that beauty Soaked in all of the ointments 
and perfumes and things that they would bring upon her. Not because she went out to find them, not because she went out to buy them, not because of any other reason, but the simple fact that she just did whatever Haggai, the Holy Spirit in our point, said do. Right? And so he, the Holy Spirit sitting under the water of the Word is washing you, it's cleansing you, it's making you radiant, it's making you bright, it's making you pure. For what reason? Go back to Revelation. So that you are what? Ready for the groom. You're ready for the groom. Now, I'm going to skip 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and uh, 2 Timothy 4 just for time's sake, but just to know those things are talking about Jesus and you. I love the word and the passion in um, 1 Corinthians. It says they're mingled together. Your spirit and his spirit are now mingled together. They are inside each other. They're not separated in any way. Um, But I want to take us to Song of Songs chapter 3. If you can get that up there, Miranda. Song of Songs chapter 3 in the Passion Version, beginning with verse 6. Now, I want you to think about what we just read with Esther. How she prepared herself. But then what was the outcome in the end? Right? She had a preparation period. Right? When we looked at Revelation chapter 19, there was a preparation period for that bride, obviously. Because she had made herself ready. And whenever you continue to read that in Revelation 19, um, I think it's verse 21, somewhere in there. It talks about basically going out and wiping out the evil, okay? Just wiping it out. When? When they've come together for the bridegroom and the bride have come together. When she's made herself ready, so there's a preparation period there, they come together, and then by the time you get to the end of chapter 19, they've wiped and annihilated out the enemy. Okay? Didn't we see that in Esther's story? She had a preparation period, but together, notice she couldn't do it on her own, and the king wouldn't have done it on his own, but together they annihilate the enemy. Right? Now look at this. This is Song of Songs. If you've never taken the chance to just take Song of Songs in the Passion Version and realize that every time it's talking about the Shulamite bride, that's talking about you. Every time it's talking about the king, the shepherd king, it's talking about Jesus. This is all about the relationship of what he thinks about you. That's why we sang, He is jealous for me. That's why we sang that I that we are bending beneath the weight of all this grace and this glory and of all of who He is because this is what He truly thinks about you. He is madly, deeply in love with you. So by the time we get to chapter 3, He is already conversing back and forth of what He thinks about you. But notice what comes together whenever they come together in verse 6 of chapter 3. Verse 6, chapter 3. He said, This is the voice of the Lord, okay? Who is this one ascending from the wilderness in the pillar of the glory cloud? So here we're picturing picturing Abba. And Abba is looking at his son and his son's bride. Who's the son's bride? Who? Us. Who's the son? Jesus. Okay. So get that in your mind. 
Who is this one ascending from the wilderness in the pillar of the glory cloud? He is fragrant with the anointing oils of myrrh and frankincense. Now, where did we see that in Esther's story? In her preparation time. What did we just read about Jesus and his sacrifice? What did his sacrifice do for us? His sacrifice has already prepared you. It already cleansed you, right? What is myrrh known for? Where did you also hear about myrrh? Jesus, when he was born, what was his three gifts? One of them was myrrh, representing what? Getting ready for his burial. That you've been buried with him and you've been raised with him. He is fragrant with the anointing oils of myrrh and frankincense. More fragrant than all the spices of merchant of the merchant. Look. It is the king's marriage carriage. Who's going to be in this thing? Who's in the marriage carriage? We are, and he is, the bride and the groom. It is the king's marriage carriage, the love seat. Now listen, this is where I want you to really get in now. Come on. you got to get this. The love seat is, just picture this in your mind. If you've got to close your eyes to do it, do it. Surrounded by 60 champions. The mightiest of Israel's host. That's good. Now, picturing that in your mind, this is spiritual. He's trying to get you to see with your spiritual eyes that the eyes of your understanding and illuminating your imagination to understand, you picture it's you and him. You're in the marriage carriage together. What does that mean? He's leading the procession. You don't have to worry about where you're going. He's got it. You just got to sit in that baby. When you're sitting with the king, what is around the carriage? 60 of the best champion host. What is that talking about? The Lord is the Lord of the angel armies of all the host of, of, of heaven. That's good, man. That means nothing can penetrate that. You are protected in Him. You and Him are in that place. The mightiest of Israel's hosts are like pillars of protection. They stand, what? Ready. So when I got the battle coming, and I'm thinking I got to get all riled up, and I got to get my sword out and got to start flaying that baby, I've got to remember where I am. I'm with Him. And that's why in Psalms 23 that I can sit down. He has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Me and him are in that carriage and brother, we got married. On the way, me and Julius, um, when we got married, they packed up all the goodies with us, right? Because we didn't have time. We were talking to too many people, so they packed up sandwiches and cake and everything else. So we got to enjoy the wedding cake, what? As we were going, right? As we're traveling. We're going on our way, right? Picture yourself there. He has prepared a table before you. Enemies surrounded. What you got to worry about? It's already surrounded and protected by the mightiest of hosts. That's good. I just get to sit at his table and eat. I get to sit at his table and eat. Okay? The king made this mercy seat. 
Wait, let's go back to verse 8. They stand ready with swords to defend the king and his fiance from every terror of the night. How many? Every single one of them. It's ready. To defend what? The king and his fiance from every terror of the night. The king made this mercy seat for himself out of the finest wood that will not decay. Pillars of smoke, the silver mist, a canopy of golden glory dwells above it and the place where they, who is they? You and him. Sit together is sprinkled with crimson. Love and mercy cover this carriage. I don't deserve it. I just don't deserve you. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know my history. You don't know what I've done. I have so much shame. I can't even imagine that he would even think of me in this way. How could I get in the marriage chamber with the, with the king? That's how. It's covered with love and mercy. Crimson red is the blood that covers the mercy seat. Blanketing his tabernacle throne. You remember David. That's how they could come into that place. He made the once sacrifice as it was entering into Mount Zion and then they opened the place up 24-7 and it says that they would worship without the consciousness of sin. And Hebrew says, you've already arrived from Mount Zion. That's you where you live. The place where they sit together, spring of Christ, love and mercy, cover this carriage, blame the tabernacle throne, and the king himself has made it for those who will become his bride. Again, going back to Paul's statement, Jesus has already prepared this for you. Rise up, Zion maidens. Remember Zion? Three, four weeks ago? Remember Zion? That's where you are. Zion is that place Right? Where it's free access to the king at all times without consciousness of sin. Come and feast your eyes on this king as he passes in procession on his way to his wedding. This is the day filled with overwhelming joy. The day of his great gladness. That's what's offered for you. I don't think we can act, I don't think we actually take time to comprehend what we have access to every single day. Not just on Sunday when we come together. Come this is your place. This is where you get to reside. Come on. Come play a little bit. So I want you to just close your eyes. Can you picture the marriage carriage? This carriage is carrying you and him. He delights so much in you. What are you doing in your daily walk? 
to prepare yourself for this banquet. Are you so caught up in analyzing what you did right and what you did wrong today? Are you simply getting in a place secret place where it's just you and him. Letting his word wash over you. His word. Jesus says when he's praying in John 17, he says, my word has already cleansed them. Has already cleansed you. If you keep reading this in Song of Solomon, this is what this is what Jesus says about you right now. Not some futuristic version of you. Not because whenever you finally get it all together, when you finally get it all together, then I might say there's no he looking at you right now, and he says, This is what I have for you. He says, Listen, my dearest darling, you are so beautiful. This is as hard for you. This is hard for you. You are so beautiful. He says this to you today. You are beauty itself to me. I'm not making this up. I'm reading it straight out of the book. It's his word to you. Let it wash over you. You come in here with shame and guilt. You come in here with not understanding. You come in here wondering what He really thinks about you. What He really thinks about the mistakes you've made. What He really... Does He even care about my situation? And He is looking at you and says, You are so beautiful. You are beauty itself. to me. goes on to say in verse 2, when I look at you, I see how you have taken my fruit and tasted my word. Let his word wash over you. Reach out by faith. Reach out by faith and take that fruit and taste Psalms 34. Taste and see. It's an experience of His goodness. No, we don't deserve it. But it's an invitation. It's an open invitation that says, Come right now and partake. tasted my word and your life has become clean and pure. Oh, what pleasure you bring to me. 
That's what the Father says about you. That's what Jesus is saying over you. Is that how you view Him all the day, every day? And so He says, Oh, what pleasure you bring to me. Are your thoughts of condemnation that says, Idiot, what'd you do that for? Oh, He says, He takes so much pleasure in you. judgment in the room if you want to stand and just dance in His presence if you want to kneel if you want to lay down before His presence He is open It says come come and partake of the feast I have set before you it's for you it's for you table ready to eat and drink of him notice what he said in that verse I see how you have taken my fruit and tasted my word so 
Father, we take you. Take what you have given us through your Son. Holy Spirit, renew us. Take us deeper in your presence. Hey, drink.